Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Uber wants to be the Amazon of retail, of e-commerce. The Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. Capital return is the key story for the U.S. banks. The telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we will dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to take a look at green bond trends, why sales are actually slipping. Plus, a look at European airlines. But first, we want to take a look at what a Joe Biden administration could mean for transportation and fuel. And for that, we welcome Bloomberg Intelligence government analyst James Blatchford. Um, James, I kind of wanted to hit like every week some topic and get a read on kind of what a Trump or Biden would mean for that policy. Um, EVs would be huge. Uh, curtails on oil production would be big under Biden administration. Walk me through your research so far. Yeah, absolutely. I agree on all those points. Um, when when thinking about the transportation specifically, um, no doubt that a new fuel efficiency rule would probably be the central part of that. Um, obviously, the Trump administration recently uh, finalized their version of that, uh, which was already a bit of a reversal from the Obama era. And I think that uh, a Biden administration would look to reverse that again uh, and put something more stringent in place. Probably that would help drive uh, EVs as well. It's interesting, James. I mean, the industry must be feeling whipsawed. I mean, under the Obama administration and presumably most Democratic administrations, um, the push is towards EV. It's away from fossil fuels. It's, you know, more curtails uh, uh, on energy companies. Yet under the Trump administration, it was an exact, seemed like a 180 on that. And now they're going to do potentially do a 180 again. How do these industries, how do they plan long term? Yeah, this isn't easy, right? Um, there's, there's no doubt that they have been whipsawed on this particular issue. Um, the, the changes are quite significant each time. Um, and you have ongoing uh, debates and litigation and so forth between, um, you know, supporters and, and opponents. 
um, the the Trump administration's role is being fought by California and a bunch of other aligned states plus environmental groups and others. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think at this point they they probably were able the automakers to make a few adjustments to to their production lines and so on and and prepare a little bit, but. Obviously, if it continues to just change like this, there is a lot of uncertainty and that's difficult to deal with. So you you raise a really good point because a lot of these um, car makers have already planned a transition to EVs. And it's not like they're going to scrap all the models and like go and make a gas guzzler in the next like three months. Um, So I'm wondering if, if it's a reversal policy. Is it do these guys actually want like a Biden win? Because the more tax credits we get to buy EVs, the more cars they're going to sell, which gives them more money to go make more cars. So in theory, that would that might actually perversely be better for them. Um, well, he's like, not so much, <laughs> but thanks. <laughs> well, I think that certainty is always better. Right. Um, and so whichever outcome ultimately they get um, will at least provide a a degree of certainty heading into the more medium term. But you're absolutely right that they're not backing off on their commitment to more EVs. Um, In part, they're already working on more EVs because they need to have those in the fleet to help bring down that fleet-wide efficiency level. Um, to, to the to where the regulation is right to offset the more gas guzzling SUVs that they sell in in very large quantities and so yeah it, it will definitely be a different world for them if if Biden does win but also it will take a little bit of time for a Biden administration to put together a new rule that probably looks a lot more like uh, the Obama era rule and obviously they would. I think, look to align that much more closely again with California, the way the rule was developed back in 2012. James, uh, you know, Alex brought up an interesting point, the tax credit. Give us a sense of kind of where we are on that. Um, I seem to remember it lapsed in certain states or certain areas. What do you think the Biden administration will do as it relates to tax credits? So, yeah, the, the federal tax credit has kind of been in a holding pattern. Um, they, they haven't uh, renewed or extended that. Um, there's been talk about it this year and, and last year as well. Um, both Tesla and GM have, have gone past the cap there, which is 200,000 vehicle sales. Um, so they're no longer able to offer that. But, but all the other companies are still well below that threshold. Um, I I've long believed that they will extend this in in one way or another. Um, I think it becomes more likely with with a Biden administration, but I I do think that there's bipartisan support in Congress for it, and this is one that would require Congress couldn't just be done by uh, by the administration. We've seen uh, quite substantial improvements in range over the last few years, um, we're also seeing more and more companies offer vehicles with with a much more extended range than they used to have. And that will, I think, help address that range anxiety concern. All right, James, thanks a lot. Super appreciate it. Bloomberg Intelligence government analyst James Blatchford. 
Coming up on the program, Green Bonds in Focus. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. While green bond issuance may continue to cool through the rest of the year, to help us understand why, let's bring in Bloomberg Intelligence ESG analyst Simone Andrews. Simone, thanks so much for joining us here. So talk to us about what's going on in the first half of this year. I know that's been a crazy, crazy year impacting issuance all over the place, but as it relates to green debt sales, what's going on? Sure. Thanks for having me on. So overall, green bond sales have been sluggish this year as some issuers have postponed um, their sustainability goals to focus on the impacts of the pandemic. So the first half, we saw green bond sales plummet to $97 billion, which is a 20% drop from the same time last year. That was a complete turnaround, different story from last year, where we saw issuance top $250 billion, which is about a 50% increase from 28. Um, 28 deal flow. So overall, uh, green deals are down, and uh, we we if if the pace continues, we we see this uh, being the the storyline uh, through the through the end of the year. Why? Why is it down? Like, is it really COVID related? Or is something else going on? COVID is definitely at play here. Um, we could probably blame COVID for anything, really. Like, <laughs> it totally that, doesn't that work. Is, COVID is an, an easy scape. Um, but uh, I, I think it's I think it's the corporate here. So one reason for the possible slowdown in in, in green bond sales is that we are seeing spending down, all broad, broadly speaking, and that you know, is putting pressure on companies spending on green projects overall. So if you take a look at issuers in the Bloomberg Barclays corporate bond index, um, you saw CapEx spending, particularly in the energy and uh, industrial sector, and those are industries that uh, contribute to green sales. Uh, you also saw in the emerging markets, so in, uh, Chinese issuance down uh, by really over 50% first half. So um, what, what you're seeing is a slowdown in spending. You're seeing a refocus uh, in, in liquidity and just uh, shoring up balance sheets. And so that's yep. taking the focus off of green bonds. Yeah, you've got a great chart in your research notes, Simone, just kind of on the, the issuance. And, you know, it was up and to the right for the last six, seven, eight years. Issuance really on a steady trend up. And then obviously this year happened. Uh, so a, a big issue there. How about the political aspect of this, Simone? Um, potentially, if we get uh, a Biden presidency, what do you think that means for ESG and sustainability uh, issuance in general? Um, that's that's a great question. I think we're all kind of waiting and to see where where his policies lay out. What I can say is that um, in the U.S., um, issuance has always trailed European issuers. So um, I think that that's going to continue to be a long-term trend, um, especially as Europe is just so much further ahead in how it's supporting this space. I mean, you can take the ECB's uh, Com- commitment to um, thinking about um, targeting green bonds in their purchasing program. So that is going to hopefully broaden out um, the types of issuers uh, that we see coming to the market. Right now, it's um, close to 98% investment grade. And so that, you know, that's only attracting certain uh, investors. We, we really need to see this broaden out uh, and, and see at play. But what's clear is that um, uh, this market is moving, um, you know, in the right direction. 
Maybe not this year, but uh, overall it is. Well, I'm glad you brought up the ECB because I feel like many many analysts and investors really feel like it's a matter of time until the ECB just starts buying green bonds, and that really truly helps create uh, a genuine market for these assets. It. What do you What do you think about that? I think it's much needed. I think that, just as I mentioned, I think this market needs to see a a real jolt to get it to where um, it's more than 1% to 2% of uh, the entire uh, capital market's issuance. So ECB is a good thing. It's it's good for bringing more liquidity to market and encouraging issuers who were not already in the market to come on in uh, and start to issue uh, these green bonds for specific projects. Simone, are there certain industries that you've seen a notable pullback this year in terms of issuance? Yes. So we, we definitely saw pullbacks um, in, in terms of financials, so banks, um, governments, asset-backed securities. Um, really, all, all um, sectors were down besides utilities and uh, U.S. munis. So um, it was a broad pullback. I think you saw, uh, for, for particularly for uh, governments, the sovereigns and um, banks, they really turned their focus to social bonds and, sustain, uh, and sustainability bonds. Um, and so I think that, that that's where their focus is, is on uh, addressing really the impact um, from a social and economic sense uh, of, of the pandemic. Well, I also wonder, and this is part of the reason why I asked that ECB question, is like, if we can't create a market for any of these securities truly like develop a deep liquid market on their own, should there be one? Like maybe there isn't the demand for it? I mean, you can see from the numbers that there's definitely the demand for it. I think what we're where we're at and the story of green bonds is how do we take it to the next level? How do we get push it beyond the one to two percent of capital markets? And I think uh, it's just going to take a number of things. One of one of the interesting um, trends that are happening is that uh, we're seeing uh, new types of uh, ways that. Um, issuers can come to the market, so sustainable, sustainability-linked bonds um, is, is, is a new form where your um, the bond is tied to a step-up coupon. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I think what we need to see is more um, issuers come to the market, feel like they can come to the market, and, and not um, uh, because really, if you think about it, um, there's a lot of potential here. Any kind of any time a utility issues a renewable energy bond, that could potentially be a a, a green bond. So, um, I think I think we've got a lot of potential um, in the kind of the unlabeled space. Simone, you know, I probably first started hearing about ESG investing as a thing maybe five, six, seven years ago. You know, meeting European clients for Bloomberg, I heard about it. You know, again over in Europe first. And then it started to get bigger and bigger over here in the U.S. Why do you think that the Europeans uh, were ahead on this issue? I think it's a, a number of different issues. I think they've got um, the policy set up, the, the regulatory framework uh, that's pushing this. You've got a, a number of governments in Europe that have set and are aligned to the Paris Climate Agreement. And so with that, they are encouraging um, corporates and other types of issuers to get out and issue green bonds. Hey, Simone, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate that. This is a growing market, ESG, despite the pullback this year in uh, issuance. Uh, ESG analyst Simone Andrews from Bloomberg Intelligence. 
When was the first time you heard about it, Paul? You said you were in Europe. Five, but like, six years ago. Five or six years ago. Right. And they're like, we're just bar- bird behind. I think that's what that means. Um, all right. Coming up on the program, why consensus sales for online travel could take a sharper slide in the second half of the year. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BIGO on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analyst covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. Paul, you taking a vacation this year? Not really. Yeah, not not really. And that's and we're the problem. We're basically why online travel agencies are just getting pummeled and it actually could get worse. They have a 54% decline year to date in their stocks and the bottom might not be in. Here to break it down, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industry Analyst Mandeep Singh. Mandeep, are you taking vacation this year? Well, I am taking domestic vacation. So Aha, I, the I problem. Yes, and and as a category, I think it's alternative accommodations that has fared relatively better than, you know, any other segment in travel, simply because a lot of people are going out of the city, they are at summertime, and they are really looking for these longer duration stays at vacation rentals. So that's a category that has been a bright spot. But other than that, everything else has been really tanking, and we don't any signs of recovery, at least till the second half of 2021. Wow. wow. So, Mandeep, I know you talk to, you cover all these online travel companies. Is that what they're telling you in terms of demand coming back? Maybe not to pre-pandemic levels, but to something a more reasonable level. It could be that kind of duration. Is that what you're hearing from those companies? Uh, so right now, the companies are really focused on their expenses. Uh, for the likes of Booking and Expedia, it's all about controlling costs, really, you know, focusing on cash burn. I mean, just to give you some context, Expedia will have negative free cash flow of $3 billion this quarter. And a lot of that wow. is coming from cancellation. So these are the bookings that were booked, you know, six to 12 months in advance that people are canceling and they have no choice but to refund in a lot of cases. And that's resulted in, you know, immense pressure on their balance sheet, especially in case of Expedia. Booking, because of their business model, they use an agency model, whereas Expedia is more exposed to airlines and it uses more merchant type of bookings. Uh, uh, so in case of booking, at least they have a better balance sheet to weather these, you know, cancellations and really the pressure on uh, free cash flow. Well, I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought that up because I guess what has happened, and I know this is totally anecdotally, by the way, is that people that I know that I work with booked vacations like a month ago for the fall, being like, it's going to be fine. And clearly now they had to get the money back. And I wonder, you see a recovery pretty late, and I wonder how much that takes into account the psychology or an actual like second wave kind of thing? Yeah, so I I think a lot of it, like you said, is sentiment-based and people will travel eventually. But uh, the trends that we are seeing is, you know, right now no one is thinking of booking travel far out in 2021 or 2022 with the hopes of a vaccine. That's not the case. 
It's more about, you know, okay, can I take a short-term vacation domestically? No one is booking air travel, which is really hurting Expedia. So the trends are more short-term in nature, and the way, uh, you know, people are behaving, it's more that just to give you another number, the traffic on these websites is down about 75 to 80%. And then on top of that, the conversion rate is down, you know, at least mid-teens compared to what it was before. So uh, all in all, you know, uh, the pressure is immense when it comes to just the overall traffic, the conversions, and, uh, you know, that just compounds the problem they have with the lack of demand. One of the things, Mandeep, that a lot of folks are saying here that study, uh, you know, kind of the changes that might come out of this pandemic is saying that business travel may never return to pre-pandemic levels. Um, How much of these online travel companies, do they rely on business? Are they mostly consumer-driven? Yeah, so they are mostly consumer-driven, although business travel is a good, you know, uh, about 10 to 15% of their business. And and that's, uh, you know, the higher ESP uh, kind of portion of their business. So it will hurt them. It will hurt their profitability. And I think the good thing for the OTAs is because they are so well diversified, I mentioned about alternative accommodations as a category, that will offset some of that decline in, you know, business travel. So because the OTAs are more diversified, it helps them kind of weather this a lot better than, uh, you know, the standalone airlines and the hotels that are getting pummeled because uh, they don't have a way to diversify. I mean, if the hotel demand is down and there are no, you know, business travelers, then they can't do anything about it, uh, you know, in terms of the demand. So I, I think that that way the OTAs are much better positioned and they will come out of this. Really, really fascinating conversation. Uh, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industry Analyst Mandeep Singh, I was totally going to book a vacation for April <laughs> in in February, being like, oh my God, by April we'll be fine. Not right, so much. Yeah. yeah, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Coming up on the program, we'll look at European Airlines. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. European airlines continue to be focused on reducing their intense cash burn. We want to welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst Rob Barnett. When we say intense cash burn, what do we really mean by intense cash burn? Well, it varies from airline to airline, but if you look at some of the full-service carriers like IAG, we believe they're burning on the order of about a billion euros a month. So pretty big numbers. It's going to take uh, a lot of balance sheet strength to get through the uh, COVID-19 impact, in our opinion. All right. So, you know, Rob, I know you work with George Ferguson covering, looking at these airlines here. And what are, do you think, what do you think is the consensus from the airlines about when travel will come back to some reasonable level? I won't say, you know, pre-pandemic level, but some reasonable level. Great question. The Recovery look like recovery looks like it's going to be very prolonged in our perspective. Uh, most airlines are guiding that they're not going to get back to the 2019 level 
until 2023, maybe 2024. Wow. So this is going to be a a very long duration. Now, of course, you do have some optimists. Uh, Ryanair, which has been an upstart, really disrupting the industry, they think they get back to where they were by next summer, but I I think they've got rose-tinted glasses, frankly. Well, but they're the low-budget carrier, right? So I wonder if we need to start making a distinction between the low-budget guys who can kind of like pack people on for the cheap, and then those that don't, who do more business class, for example. Absolutely. Uh, We think business travel is going to be much slower to rebound, so we do see that distinction. So when you think about the full-service folks, that's uh, British Airways, owned by IAG, Air France, and Lufthansa, and they're up against EasyJet, Ryanair, Wiz, and a few other discount carriers here in Europe. And the discount carriers, they don't do any of the long haul. They're not flying transatlantic between London and New York. And frankly, because of travel restrictions, we're we're kind of already seeing the reboot of the European-only airlines much more quickly. Just to give you a quick sense on that, Wiz Air, which is kind of an Eastern European airline, is already flying about 75% of their capacity so really? 25% from where they were last year, but that's a pretty good outcome. Ryanair, which, again, is one of the more optimistic ones, they're only flying about 40% of their capacity at the moment. So even they're pretty far off from where they'd like to be. Rob, are the European airlines better positioned than the Americans? Are there, is, there, you know, is there government support there to a greater extent than we have in the U.S.? What's the relative health between European airlines and the U.S.? Well, government support is, is is pretty critical at the moment. And right now, we've seen roughly 30 billion euros in government aid get doled out here in Europe so far. It's, it is interesting, though, because some of the governments are taking a more selective approach. So Germany has given Lufthansa 9 billion euros. Air France has uh, received 7 billion euros from the French government. But if you look here in the United Kingdom, uh, British Airways, uh, Virgin Atlantic, EasyJet, some of the others, they've received a little bit of uh, loan guarantee, but nothing on the order of uh, the state subsidy that we're seeing in some of the other countries. So I, I think it really depends on which airline, which country. And and frankly, there might be more to come. I mean, this this crisis, as we already talked about, probably goes for some time yet, and, and there might be need for either more liquidity, more more government aid, especially if we get into uh, next year and we don't have a vaccine or, or uh, remission of the virus. Well, and I'm glad you you said that because I, I are we going to get into a circumstance where it's literally which country has the most money to support their airline industry, full stop, and then whichever country can do that is the airline that survives? Well, in some ways, that's the long history of airlines, right? I mean, it, it, over it's 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 been a boom bust industry for 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 many parts of the West. It was it was essentially quasi state entities for for a number of years, and even if you look in some countries now, Italy, they've got Alitalia. You know, it's effectively a state entity, right? So, I I do think that you, you're seeing uh, much stronger coordination and support from governments. Uh, to help some of these national carriers uh, get get through the crisis. So I, I, I think in many ways it, it's, it's an important component of thinking about the airlines over the next few years. 
but it is it's a very fundamental shift from the last couple of decades prior to the coronavirus demand shock you know the airlines had been really running at a healthy pace especially here in Europe for the last decade or even longer where you know they had been profitable healthy balance sheets so in in many ways they entered the crisis probably as well prepared as they could have been but when 90% or more of your customers disappear overnight uh, that's a hole that most businesses just aren't prepared to uh, dig themselves out of. So, Rob, what do these companies do to conserve cash? I mean, you know, they got a lot of fixed costs in their income statement. Yeah, that's right. We, we've we've been thinking about this question uh, very deeply. And again, there really is that differentiation between the full service carriers and those low cost carriers. Uh, British Airways, Air France, Lufthansa, they have much more significant costs, and it's more challenging for them to squeeze the cost. Uh, They've got unions and all kinds of stakeholders they've got to deal with. The low-cost carriers are so much more nimble. Some of them, like Wiz, don't even have – they're not unionized yet. I'm sure they hope to remain that way. And so they they can squeeze those costs so much harder than the full-service carriers. I, just to give you a rough rule of thumb, the, the, the full-service carriers are probably able to uh, reduce their cost basis by something like 50%, whereas the low-cost carriers are, are able to squeeze or reduce their cost more like 75 80 85% even as in some instances. So I, I think that uh, – and those costs, what are, what are those costs? Well, that you know, again – Biggest cost is fuel. None of the airlines are flying right now. They all get to save on fuel. Uh, but how much can they squeeze labor costs? How much can they get everything down? You know, are their planes financed? You know, what 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 are the or, or do they own them? So you know, what are their interest payments? What are their leasing costs? And a lot of variables go into it. But at the end of the day, uh, th- this is something that they're all trying to do. Uh, this obviously right. has read across for Airbus, Boeing, and and some of the others because a lot of the airlines are canceling their uh, their order book for aircraft. Well, I got to be honest, this whole radio show right now kind of bowing me out. Rob, thanks a lot. Rob Barnett, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst. When we think about trade tensions, we think about U.S. and China, but we can't forget about the ongoing transatlantic trade tensions as well. For more, we welcome Bloomberg Intelligence government analyst Clelia Imperiali. Clelia, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, I think a lot of us, we we tend to forget that there are some trade tensions between the U.S. and the European Union and individual countries in Europe as well. Give us the update. Give us the latest. Um, Hi, Paul. Yes, sure. Um, We would have indeed told that this uh, was going to be a calm summer um, for what concerns trade relations between the U.S. and the European Union, given that both sides are now quite uh, busy tackling the economic consequences of the pandemic, but also um, because of the upcoming uh, U.S. elections and the fact that normally the months preceding the vote are quite Calm uh, for what concerns trade policy. Um, but in fact, we have at least two fronts where tensions remain high and new tariffs could be applied in the coming months. And the first front is the um, digital services uh, taxation. Um, as you may recall, the US were engaging since January in the OECD multilateral trade talks uh, to find a compromise on digital uh, services tax. Uh, but last 
months, um, Washington walked out at, uh, of the of these negotiations in parallel to the fact that several countries, including um, UK, Spain and Italy from the European Union, but also Indonesia and India outside the Union, um, were working uh, on their own um, uh, version of the digital service tax, which is, as you just to recap a little bit, the context here, uh, the first country, the pioneer in Europe has been France, which has applied a, um, a quite controversial tax um, last year, which has adopted a tax that was contested by the United States and found to be um, discriminatory against U.S. tech giants, including Apple and Google, in an investigation that the U.S. carried out last year. So now, uh, in July, um, in parallel to uh, halting the negotiations of the OSD, uh, the U.S. drafted a new list of products um, from France which includes handbags and makeup, um, that could be subject to 25% tariffs if the um, digital service tax adopted by France was to be applied to um, you know, American companies. France, um, just to avoid the application of the tariffs, already uh, decided to suspend this um, um, to suspend um, the application of the of the new tax uh, in January, uh, but we don't know now with the exit from the talks at uh, the OECD what's going to happen in the coming months. All yeah, right, thank you very much. We really appreciate it, Bloomberg Intelligence Government Analyst Cecilia Imperiali. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go in the Terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.